Director Rebecca Hunt tells her own coming-of-age story in her debut documentary, Beba. The New Yorker magazine calls it an intimate film with a grand scope. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Growing up, Rebecca Hunt had the nickname Beba. Her father came from the Dominican Republic and her mother from Venezuela. They met in New York City and raised a family of three kids in a one-bedroom apartment. Rebecca is the youngest. She found early inspiration in hip-hop and Shakespeare. Her writing talent got her into Bard College, where she had to grapple with undercurrents of race, class, and discrimination. When school was over, she moved back into the pressure cooker of her family's apartment to figure out how to move forward. In the film, she confronts the small acts of cruelty between family members that leave deep wounds. Her narration combines the personal, the political, and the poetic. You are now entering my universe. I am the lens, the subject, the authority. As a product of the new world, violence lives in my DNA. I carry an ancient pain that I struggle to understand. I use it to hurt those closest to me. Every one of us inherits the curses of our ancestors. But we may put an end to this cycle by constantly going to war with ourselves. I'm watching the curses of my family slowly kill us. So I'm going to war. And there will be casualties. It took Rebecca eight years to make Beba. She had key collaborators in cinematographer Sophia Stieglitz, editor Isabel Freeman, and producer Sophia Geld. The film premiered last year at the Toronto Film Festival and gained distribution from Neon, Onyx, and Hulu. Now it's nominated for the Cinema Eye Honors in three categories, including Best Director, and also nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. Rebecca divides her time between Mexico and New York. I started by asking what motivated her on this film to look inward. I had just graduated from this sort of utopian-esque four-year liberal arts college in upstate New York. And I moved back into this, you know, sort of tumultuous one-bedroom apartment um, where I had grown up. And there was also a lot happening politically around me. It was 2012, 2013 was Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. And then there's the reality of, oh shit, now I'm an adult. And I have to move through the world and 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 sort of like contort myself to be part of this system, and so all of those things happening at the same time, um, kind of made me look at my closest relationships. The main one being my relationship to myself, 
um, and going inward to sort of just make sense of what what it what it all is, like what life is at that age. And what made you think that could be a film? Um, I just feel like with film, it's a five sensory experience. It's like, oh, well, you know, you can't smell a film, but still there's, it's just the most complete of all of the mediums in the sense that like, it's the most engrossing of all of the artistic mediums, like music. I love music and absolutely it can, it can literally just take you back to a place in time. You try, you time travel with music there's memory involved, but there's also music in film. It's this, to me, just such a universal art form that has, that, that, that I'm able to be the most free in because I'm able to play with so many different types of art forms to bring it together. And then even the way that you're watching a film a lot of the time, well, now with streaming, it's different, but in my head, like the way people watch films is at the cinema which is another way to bring people together and another form of community in a sense. So, um, and being that the film was to connect with people, like I've made it to connect more deeply with people, with my generation and with humanity in general, um, it just made the most sense. And, and I love film, so yeah. The film is about your own growth and it took you eight years to make it. So when you look back at the character on screen now, how does that person relate to who you are in your 30s? Cringe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, that is, Beba is me in my 20s, you know, um, or parts of me in my 20s. And when I see the film now, which I've seen it many times, um, I, I try to have as much compassion and acceptance, but I'm also just like, wow, I've grown a lot <laughs> since then. What are ways in which that stands out? I don't know. There's just this sort of like self-centeredness or narcissism that comes with being in your twenties. And I think it's amplified by being an artist because artists have in, in a sense there, there's a narcissistic there are narcissistic tendencies that come with being an artist um, that we all have. But uh, there's just a sort of like lack of self-awareness that um, that I had in my 20s. Perhaps every, every person does because it's important for survival, you know, like to survive your 20s, there has to be some sort of, probably some sort of lack of self-awareness, but I'm definitely a lot more self-aware now and also just I know this is gonna sound I don't want to sound corny but I have it's just like I've healed so much more like I'm not I'm not like traversing those pains and I don't think that I have to go to war with my like that I have to go to war with myself every day to uncover the meaning of life it's like please no just peace you know peace healthy food and good people around me and just my art. And that's it. When you talk about the narcissism of an artist and, and I wonder when you started to think of yourself as an artist and what gave you the confidence to think of yourself as an artist, as, as far as I know, you, there aren't artists in your family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. That's a great, great question, Tom. Um, 
Well, it all goes back to first grade. <laughs> when I was in first grade, I would write, I wrote poetry. Um, and one of my teachers was like, you're always writing this poetry. Let's, let's hear it. And then it got published in this book, um, uh, for public school kids or, or even just kids that were in private and public school in New York. It was just like their poems were chosen and then you had to sort of read it out loud in front of this audience. And ever since then I had gotten chosen every single year, um, in elementary school. And I just, I mean, I don't know, like I, it wasn't that deep to me. I was just like, I'm an artist. Like, I know I'm an artist, like, here I am. Um, and also, actually, a uh, little known fact, my grandfather, my father's father, is a musician, or was a musician. May he rest in peace. So before he started, before he um, converted into, like, seven-day Adventist and became, like, really religious and intense, he well, he was always intense, but very religious, he was a traveling artist and he used to play the the accordion, the banjo, the guitar. And so also like when I, you know, when we go to his house, sometimes he'd just play for us in, in his house in Fort Greene um, in Brooklyn. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of always figured that I was an artist, especially after, you know, that first grade. <laughs> nudge and and were you able just to carry an inner confidence about that or did you no. need reassurance or? um I still don't carry an inner confidence about it fully like I know I, obviously like I embody it I know that like I'm an artist that I'm here that this is that my purpose is to make is to tell stories and make films that connect people um but I you know I don't really know like none of us are really I guess the most assured in this system that benefits from our lack of assuredness. Um, but when I got, when I was in college, especially, I was very, um, I think I had a lot of confidence before I got about being an artist before I got to college because I chose this liberal arts school um, out of all the colleges that I got into to sort of push my artistry further. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do, like I, I was always in love with film, but when I got to college, I was like, all right, I'll do like creative writing and, you know, something else and like business or something. And like, I, I was too afraid to like really go for what I wanted. Um, and I was hoping that a creative writing, uh, that a liberal arts college would allow me to sort of become more confident and it actually the opposite happened like I was just like in the school full of kids whose parents were famous artists and um yeah so it took me a while to just sort of come back to myself and build my own confidence and realize that like I had my own profound relationship with art and with life and um and that I could contribute something meaningful so one thing you're exploring is your environment your father was determined to live near Central Park and keep the family out of a rough neighborhood. But that meant that your parents were sleeping in the living room and you were sharing the bedroom with your older sister and brother. I'm going to play a clip where you interview your father. You know, it was either one bedroom apartment or moving out of there and where would I find a place that was rent control? That building was rent control, so I was able to afford it. 
You understand? If I moved out of there and look for a place with three or four bedrooms, paying a reasonable price, it would have been a neighborhood where one of you, I assure you, wouldn't be alive today. It was it was not even close to to those to those other places. This is the best I could I was able to afford. You understand? This was the best I was able to afford. He's clearly a very stoic man, and I want to better know like what did it take to do that interview? Yeah, my father. My father is very sort of um, removed, but I'm I'm. We have a very special relationship in which I feel like my father trusts me more than anybody in the world. And a lot of our relationship throughout my entire life, because my father is so removed and it's kind of, it's hard to communicate with him. Um, I realized that one, one avenue to get closer to him when I, was a li- when I was a little girl was to start asking him questions, which is an avenue to get closer to people in general, but... Um, and so I'd ask him questions about his childhood and we, and then we would end up having these really long conversations about his childhood and we'd go on really long walks where he would just like tell me, even still now, like where he'll just tell me stories about his childhood, which I find fascinating because they're so far and so different from what my childhood was like. Um, so in that way, there was already this sort of like baseline trust and um, com- and comfort there, especially for me to ask him some more hard hitting questions. But I also just feel like, you know, I've wanted like I've loved film my entire life and wanted to be a filmmaker. And I feel like my parent, my dad, my parents didn't really understand what that entailed or what it was. So when I was like, hey, I'm going to interview you for my movie, he was like, OK. <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever, she's just doing something weird. She's always doing something weird. Now, in the interview with your mom, who is light-skinned, you asked her to talk about what it meant to raise black kids. Well, Rebecca, basically, I'm a Latin person, and I raise my kids as a Latin person because I don't know anything else. I don't know anything else. I don't know anything else at all. I don't know anything about being American, white, or black. I don't know. So you can't speak I did to my, any... I did my, all my stuff, I did it based on what I knew about being a Latin person from Venezuela. I didn't do anything about anything else. And the conversation gets prickly. So can you, sorry, can you paint a picture about how? About how what? Mommy, I'm serious. I know your microaggressive attitude right now. It's not cool. It doesn't matter. It's not cool. Your microaggressive attitude, like throughout this entire interview, is not cool. It's really not. Okay, Rebecca, let's just keep on going. But we're almost finished. What are you talking about? I know, but I just like your energy bothers me. So like, either like be real, get over it, and like answer my questions. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Or not. Okay, that's what I'm trying to do. And you come off as a kind of liberal arts educated brat in, in that totally. interview. Totally. Can you talk about, you know, what it meant to interview your mother and, and how that was a different dynamic? Yes. My mother and I at the time had a very, well, I mean, our relationship is obvious in the film. So our, you know, we were just not communicating well at all. Um, and so that was an interesting time because 
or, you know, that was an interesting interview because we actually did that interview twice. And the one that you see in the film is the one that is the closest to what an interview is, which is hilarious because there's nothing about that that's an interview. And so it's just like, okay, let's just show the truth. Let's just show what this relationship is. Um, but it's interesting because yeah, that, that, but it was, it, my mother was a lot harder to convince to, to, to do an interview just because she kept being like, oh no, I don't have time. Or like, wait, what, why, like why? And I would just be like, mom, I want to interview you because I'm making a movie about myself, which means that the family has to be involved because you guys are such a big part of me. And she was, my mom was a lot more skeptical, but eventually she was, she was supportive and was like, all right, fine. And you know, again, the sentiment of like, Rebecca's sensitive and weird and always doing weird things. So might as well just, you know, do it. Go along. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you say near the end of the film that you're afraid your family won't speak to you again. Um, and that that's not just a tossed off remark. That was something that you really felt as you were finishing the film. Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the big lessons that I've learned with this, oh, the many huge lessons that I've learned in this process and with the making of the film and beyond is that you never know. Um, because I took years off my life believing that my family was never going to talk to me again. Truly. Um, and I mean... And and can I ask, can you talk about what made you think that trade-off was worth it? So I felt like I had done it. I had made this project with so much love and so much intention and so much care that, and my family is already a pretty broken family. Like there's, you know, it's like this person doesn't talk to this person. This, so it's not like I was going to be shunned from like, my perfect, loving, like, you know, super supportive family. It was like this, you know, it's like there's that saying, I think it's like Roosevelt said it or something like that. It's, it's like on every like greeting card. The first best thing you can do is make the right decision. And then the second best thing you can do is make the wrong decision. But at least you're doing something. And so this was my way of like intervening in my in in a way with like my family dynamics but also with the dynamics of our society and how we exist as human beings like this was my contribution and you people including my family were either going to love it or they were going to hate it but i knew that i had that i was going to give this every single thing that i have and i was going to do it with all of the most with all of the love and all of the intention and all of the care and all of the integrity that I could possibly have while also making it something that like I felt was beautiful. Ultimately, uh, your family does speak to you, at least your parents yeah. do. Um, and because um, I've seen them, uh, they came to the <laughs> premiere. Uh, so I have that evidence. Um, so what was that like, uh, you know, bringing them into this project once it was finished? It was terrifying. You remember, it was so scary. Well, I, when I, telling them, having to show them the film after the fact, first of all, the way that I showed them the film was pretty boss. 
because I also felt like I had to, I was also like, all right, I have to make the best film possible because my family may never talk to me again. And if they don't, at least I've made something that I can be proud of. And then the way that I told them was, I was like, guess what? We got into Toronto International Film Festival. I want you to come to the world premiere. And that is very different from saying like, oh, I finished this film, like, want to watch it? Which is, you know, like what I thought could have happened. Um, so, and then, you know, when they saw the film, they felt really sort of, there was like a complexity. I showed it to my parents because I feel like my siblings, they, and I still feel that way now, they have like a understanding, you know, we're the same generation. And they're like, yeah, do, you know, like do your thing. But with my parents, because they're so old school and they're such an abyss with, you know, where they're from and how they grew up, I was a lot more worried. And because they're my parents and I love them more than anything. But um, yeah, it was just this feeling of like when they saw the film for the first time, there was just there it was so many feelings at the same time. Like I was able to witness the human spectrum of emotion so quickly in a way that I'd never had before. Like they were so proud and so loving, but also like angry and felt a, a sh maybe probably a little bit ashamed and then also like very free. I think more than anything, especially as time went on, like there was something liberating about it. My father brought all of his old coworkers, you know, used to work in a printing factory um, and with um, a lot of other sort of Central American and South American, Caribbean, Latino immigrants. And he brought a huge group of them to the IFC to watch the film once it was in theaters. So that tells you what, you know, that tells you something. I want to ask you about the scene with a group of your white college friends. You're talking about racial protests and tactics, but people are talking past each other and it's fumbling and frustrating. Let's listen to that clip. You know, it's like, I'm not saying reverse racism because I think that that's... It's kind of like... A stupid thing. Frivolous, or just like energy expenditure to just like throw things at cops and like break, you know, and like riot Yo, what and the shit. fuck are you talking about, though? You're making Yo, no I'm not the thing. Thing. Yo, I didn't say anything. Obama said this. Obama said this. I didn't even say, like, this. I'm just repeating what he said. We're Yo, working on it. Like you said, I mean... Do you I mean, understand the deep, the entrenched dehumanization in the idea of progress. Like, do you understand that? That's how you are just gonna view me right now. And like, I feel like a little like, I don't know how to like enter this conversation, honestly. Hey. Yeah. Absolutely, I have no idea about like the black experience or you know, no, we were sharing ideas. We're allies here. We're trying to figure this out together. How long is this process going to take? Because it's been like some 400 odd years. And, and from what I see well, in the process, can you, I need you to yeah. stop right. interrupting. I'm not saying yeah, that I'm need, not privileged. I think I'm just we saying all that, need to chill out a little bit right yeah. now because it is, we are turn, it's turning into a little bit of a. But then like when you turn on the news and they talk about like a black person killing another black person when there's just as many or more so instances what should I do? that. What, what should we, what should why, yo, why do I have to answer that question for you? And it's like, why, like, I'm, I'm not the answer to fucking white supremacy. Why don't you fucking figure out what you have to do? You're a fucking white man. I, figure it out. Yes, that's true. That was, uh, but like, that was an oversimplification that I think that was a stupid thing that you said.
So that's the only scene in the film that's uh, that's a real recreation. You, you, can you explain to me what you were trying to do there? Well, yeah, I just told everybody to be the worst versions of themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> because that's the reality of what of the of the moment in time. And that's the job of an artist is to reflect the times. And those were the conversations and the awkward and painful moment that interracial friends were having at the time. You described how when you were first formulating the idea of the film, it was against a backdrop of uh, deaths like Trayvon Martin. And the film has a political dimension to it, but it's not a didactic uh, politics. Um, and I wonder how you think about the politics in the film. Yeah, well, I I find the film to be, or I hope the film is a meditation on like existing. And politics is a huge part of our existence. Like it is, it is the basis or just something that is so humongous in the meta narrative and in the system that we've created um, as a shared universal society. Like everything is politics when it comes to um, the external and how we relate to each other as human beings on this planet. And that's something that is made up obviously, but it still is such a huge aspect of how we interact and behave and how we see ourselves even. So as much as I, you know, um, as much as politics are not something that I'm super, like, they're not my driving force. Like, my, my driving force is absolutely something that transcends politics and that is about being a, a, a human being that, and, and the sort of more universal things that connect us all. Politics are a very real aspect of existing and there's no way around them, especially if you're a politicized body. And as a black woman, I'm a politicized body. So there's no sort of getting around that fact. I want to ask you about the, the years of the final push to, uh, to make this film. I mean, now a year after it's premiered, you have the backing of Neon as a distributor and, uh, and it's on Hulu. And, uh, but in the years in which you were completing the film, those, those resources uh, didn't exist. You didn't know um, uh, where this was going to go. And, and I wonder if you can, you know, go back to, to your mentality at that time, what was, you know, uh, keeping you going and, 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 you know, were there times where you're, when you were ready to give up? There were absolutely times when I was ready to give up. But if I, if I look, my a friend just tagged me in a video of us dancing in Cafe Havana, which is a restaurant in Nolita where I was a waitress um, for many years. And I just like, look, I, I saw, I watched the video like 10 times because I was just like looking at myself and looking in my eyes and seeing how tired I was because I had like three jobs while I was making this film at all times. And I just, there's something that I can't explain about just knowing. And I just knew that this was something I had to do and that I had to give it my all. 
And I'm so lucky to have, you know, the art that came before me, whether it's some of my favorite filmmakers, writers, poets, painters, to, to find refuge in when I was exhausted. You know, it's just like, okay, I'm gonna just go to this exhibition. I'm gonna go to this museum. I'm gonna read this book. I'm gonna, you know, read this po poetry, watch this film, um, which was also just making this bibliography of Weber richer, which constantly, um, but I just, I knew that there was something that I wanted to contribute and that I had to contribute. And it was also like sort of based on my own survival too. It was like, if I wasn't doing Beba, it, it, I'd probably look a lot. I don't know how much I would have been able to survive some of the things that were happening around me. And um, yeah, so I guess it's kind of selfish, but it was also because it was like, I needed to do it to survive, but um, but I was also doing it because I wanted to contribute. As audiences have been experiencing the film um, in the last year, what have been some of the most meaningful reactions to you? I think it's cool how comfortable people feel around me. Like, I think in terms of... Um, I feel like I've always been somebody who I, I, I pride myself on being someone that people can feel comfortable around and who I, I pride myself on being warm and open because I just, I wish the world was more that way. So I try to be more of that. But I feel like I've had many people come up to me and tell me some really personal stories and I'm like this keeper of these treasures that people give me. And sometimes it's like really intense and I just need to, you know, meditate it and, or wash it away or do some sort of ritual to like let some of the pain that is shared with me go. But overall, I just feel so blessed that I can like connect with people in that way and that people feel that comfortable. So last question, if you could go back and talk to the Rebecca of 10 years ago, uh, starting off on this project, uh, what would you tell her? I would just hug the shit out of her and tell her how much I love her and that she is going to be all right and that I just that I love her so much and that I know that she was that she's just doing her best. She's going to learn so much. There's so much. Yeah. And I bet in 10 years I'll probably say something similar cuz there's just still so much more to do. There's so many more movies to make. There's so much more coming. Word. thank Rebecca Hunt for speaking with me. Her film Beba is now playing on Hulu. IndieWire named it as one of the top 25 films of the year. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. We're taking a break from Twitter, but you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.